And one lady walked up to me here this last time around between October of 19 until July the 2nd. And she said, what is he? Is he the uterus collector? Does he collect uteruses? And I asked her, what does she mean? And she says, everybody that I talked to has had a hysterectomy. And you just don't know what to say. I mean, I don't, I don't have a answer for why that they would come to me and they would say, is he the uterus collector? You have good genes, you know that, right? <laughs> you have good genes. A lot of it's about the genes, isn't it? Don't you believe? The racehorse theory, you think we're so different? You have good genes in Minnesota. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk About Race. I like to end the show by saying every day and in every way, we hope you agitate for social change. Thank you for listening. For more information on Let's Talk About Race, visit us on social media. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk Race 1 or check us out on Instagram at LT. AR show or www.letstalkrace.net. The following program has been produced by Grassroot News Northwest. You are listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM, also heard at Translator K220HR Hood River at 91.9 FM and Translator K282BH in Philomath at 104.3 FM. And we're streaming at the top of our lungs on www.kboo.fm. Thanks for tuning in. Attention all KBOO members. Ballots for our board of directors election have been mailed out, so check your mailbox. Then make sure to tune in on Tuesday, October 27th at 10 a.m. or Wednesday, October 28th at 7 p.m. to hear interviews with your candidates for KBOO's board of directors. We'll be asking each of our candidates about their skills and experience to help you decide who to vote for. Again, that's October 27th at 10 a.m. or Wednesday, October 28th at 7 p.m right here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Studios of KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, the second and final presidential debate of 2020 took place Thursday night in Nashville, Tennessee, and was markedly different from the first one in late September. 
the Commission on Presidential Debates had changed the rules to mute the microphones of President Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden while the other was giving their main answer to questions. Mr. Trump, who was widely castigated after his first debate performance for raging uncontrollably and continuously interrupting Biden and the moderator, changed his behavior during the second debate. However, the deception that the president has made a hallmark of his tenure remained at high levels. Fact-checkers found that Trump spewed the most lies of the night by far. The New York Times summarized it this way, quote, Mr. Trump, Trump unleashed an unrelenting series of false, misleading and exaggerated statements as he sought to distort Mr. Biden's record and positions and boost his own re-election hopes. The president once again relied heavily on well-worn talking points that have long been shown to be false. Among the numerous issues discussed at the debate was the coronavirus pandemic, which so far has claimed more than 220,000 American lives. To close down, he'll close down the country if one person in our, in our massive bureaucracy says we should close it down. Vice President Biden, your Simply response. Simply not true. We ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We ought to be able to safely open but would they need resources to open? You need to be able to, for example, if you're going to open a business, have social distancing within the business. You need to have, if you have a restaurant, you need to have plexiglass dividers so people cannot infect one another. You need to be in a position where you can take testing rapidly and know whether a person is, in fact, infected. You need to be able to trace. You need to be able to provide the, all the resources that are needed to do this. And that is not inconsistent with saying that what we're going to make sure that we open safely. That's former Vice President Joe Biden responding to President Trump during Thursday night's debate about what he would do to tackle the pandemic. Immigration was also a hot topic at the debate, and the immigrant family separations that Trump's government adopted as a deterrent was under scrutiny. Trump claimed that the majority of children separated from their parents were brought by coyotes or traffickers and not by their own parents even though it's been well documented that separating children from parents was a deliberate policy. Mr. Biden took Trump to task on the issue. Let's talk about what we're talking about. What happened? Parents were ripped, their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's criminal. Arguably the most shocking line of the night came from Trump, who claimed that most immigrants do not reappear for their court hearings, except those with the, quote, lowest IQ. Only the really, I hate to say this, but those with the lowest IQ, they might come back. Okay, President Trump, very, let's very give few. Vice President... The issue of race and policing was also front and center, with Mr. Trump claiming, contrary to all evidence, that he had done more for the black community than any other president, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, and that he was the least racist person in the room. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. That's President Trump at Thursday night's debate. Among Biden's responses was a reminder that Trump had been one of the loudest champions of the death penalty for the Central Park Five, a group of falsely accused African-American teens. This is a guy who in the Central Park Five, five innocent black kids, he continued to push for making sure that they got the death penalty. None of them were, none of them were guilty 
of what the crime of the crimes they were suggested. Also discussed during the debate was climate change, health care, Trump's taxes, the minimum wage, and more. A CNN poll of viewers and undecided voters concluded that Biden won the debate, while observers pointed out that Trump's wild and deceptive claims had strong echoes of Fox News talking points in a way that most people who don't consume right-wing news may have been alienated by. As Election Day nears, a record-shattering 50 million voters have already cast their ballots in early voting states. But Trump and Biden are both setting up legal teams in case there is a contested vote. The Trump re-election campaign, however, has far less money on hand than Biden's campaign. Still, the president apparently has enough funding to secretly videotape voters dropping off ballots at drop boxes in Philadelphia, which Pennsylvania's attorney general says amounts to illegal voter intimidation. As the battle over mail-in voting continues, a federal judge has just ruled that the U.S. Postal Service needs to reinstall the high-volume mail-sorting machines that Trump loyalist and Postmaster General Louis DeJoy decommissioned. Foreign interference is also expected to play a role, as U.S. intelligence officials point the finger at both Iran and Russia, but warn that Russia is the far bigger threat. And at least one plan for violence has been thwarted. Federal officials just arrested a 19-year-old white man who was planning on assassinating Biden and had in his possession a van full of weapons and ammunition. Coronavirus infections continue to rise in the United States, with the second highest daily total being reported on Thursday since the pandemic began. More than 75,000 new cases were documented, just 2,000 shy of the highest total reported in July. Hospitals across the U.S. are dangerously reaching capacity. The states of Utah, Montana and Wyoming that had been relatively quiet on the virus front are now emerging as new national hotspots for the disease. Health officials are citing resistance to mask wearing as the culprit. A letter signed by 130 Democratic lawmakers and led by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ro Khanna urged the federal government to take action. In the letter are five clearly articulated steps that the signatories outline, including ramping medical supply chains, ramping up public health jobs, tackling the systemic racism that leads to black and brown Americans having worse health outcomes, and long-term environmental solutions to prevent future pandemics. The city of New York has launched a lawsuit against the federal government's labeling of it as an anarchist jurisdiction, saying the move will cost the local government billions. Trump last month asked the Justice Department, in a shocking and unprecedented move, to withhold federal funds from the cities of New York, Portland, and Seattle because, according to him, they have allowed, quote, themselves to deteriorate into lawless zones. Nineteen women were found to have been medically abused in a privately run Georgia immigrant detention center. The Los Angeles Times obtained a report written by numerous gynecologists and nursing experts at academic institutions who reviewed thousands of pages of medical records and concluded that abuse took place in the form of overly aggressive or medically unnecessary procedures without the consent of the women, including depriving some of them of their ability to have children. The Attorney General of Massachusetts, Mara Healey, published an op-ed in the Washington Post on Friday, accusing the Justice Department of letting one of the world's wealthiest families off the hook in a major case around the opioid epidemic. Ms. Healey wrote, quote, The Justice Department cut a deal on Wednesday with the Sackler family, the billionaire owners of Purdue Pharma, 
were accused by my office and others of causing much of the opioid epidemic through their illegal marketing of OxyContin. Selling opioids made the Sacklers one of the richest families in the world, with a fortune reported at $13 billion beyond the value of Purdue. But the Justice Department decided to let the Sacklers pay $225 million and walk away. And that does it for our news headlines. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up at Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, during Thursday night's second and final presidential debate, sparred on numerous issues, including immigration. Only days earlier, the story broke that lawyers ordered by a federal judge to reunite separated immigrant families could not locate the parents of 545 children. When asked about the horror of family separation at the debate, Trump lied, saying coyotes and bad people brought the children as an excuse to enter the country and that the children were being taken care of in wonderful conditions. Here are some excerpts of the Thursday night exchange between the two major party candidates for president. Children are brought here by coyotes and lots of bad people cartels, and they're brought here, and they used to use them to get into our country. And we let people in, but they have to come in legally, and they come in through But America. how will you reunite these kids you, with their families, let me just tell you, Mr. President? They built cages. You know, they used to say, I built the cages. And then they had a picture in a certain newspaper, and it was a picture of these horrible cages. And they said, look at these cages. President Trump built them. And then it was determined they were built. In 2014, that was him. Do you they have a plan cages. to reunite the kids? Yes, we're working family? on it very, we're, we're trying very hard. But a lot of these kids come out without the parents. They come over through cartels and through coyotes and through gangs. Yeah. These 500 plus kids came with parents. They separated them at the border to make it a disincentive to come to begin with. They, real tough, we're really strong. And guess what? They cannot, it's not coyotes didn't bring them over, their parents were with them. They got separated from their parents. And it makes us a laughing stock and violates every notion of who we are as a nation. Let me ask you a follow-up question. They did it. We changed the policy. Your response they to did that? It. We, we did not. They built the cages. The they, who, who built the cages, let's, Joe? Let's talk about what who we're built talking the cages, about. Joe? Let's talk about what we're talking about. They are so well taken care of. They're in facilities that were so clean. But some of them haven't been reunited. Good. But just ask one question. Who built the cages? I'd love you to ask him that. That's Trump and Biden on Thursday night at the second and final presidential debate discussing immigrant family separation. We turn now to Carol Ann Donahoe, managing attorney of the Family Reunification Project at Al Otro Lado. Welcome to the program, Carol Ann. 
Thank you for having me. So much to discuss in that exchange between Trump and Biden on Thursday night. First, let's talk about the fact that Trump was asked about the plan for reuniting families. And he immediately pivoted to, well, it wasn't really parents who brought the children in. It was coyotes. It was bad people. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, that's not surprising because uh, that's Donald Trump's typical dog whistle um, to just pivot between not answering the question and dehumanizing the people who are coming across the border. Um, so uh, he uh, said that they are being brought by coyotes and uh, drug smugglers and, and, and all of that. But really, the list that the attorneys are going by is a list that was provided by the government after the judge required them to once they acknowledged that they'd actually been separating families for a a long time. Um, So the list that they're going off of is a list of families that our own government has identified as having been separated either during the zero tolerance policy or during the pilot program. Not separated from traffickers, but separated from parents. Right, separated from parents. By the US government, not anyone else. So it's a list of parents and children that our government has identified as Hmm. having been separated by our government. So the only, the closest that Trump came on Thursday night to acknowledging what his government did was when moderator Kristen Walker uh, repeated the question whether, uh, you know, the government had a plan to reunite the children. And he said, yes, we do. And we're working very hard on it. And then he immediately jumped away from it and refused to focus on it. So let's focus on it for a little bit. 545 children. That's a lot of lives that have been deeply traumatized, a lot of families that have been ripped apart. I cannot, as a parent, imagine what it's like for either my child or myself if I was to be ripped away from my children. So who do these children represent in terms of the total number of families that were separated? What happened to the families just in broad strokes when they came to the uh, United States and were caught by the government? Yes, well, and I am also a parent, and um, reading, I, I, you know, I'm privy to all the documents and the uh, declarations from each of these families that we represent, and um, I can tell you it's heartbreaking to read through uh, what we have done to these families, and when you talk about the 545, remember, those are the ones that have yet to be found. But there were, uh, I think, about 1,100 parents and uh, parents on that original list of families and who had been separated and then deported. And that's kind of where our focus Separated is. and then deported without their children. So, so the government took deported. away the children from the yes. parents, deported the parents, leaving the children in the United States. I mean, they could have deported whole families back, which would have been cruel enough but they deported the parents, leaving the children behind. I mean, that's kidnapping, that's mass kidnapping. Right, and and, and I'm glad you say that because I think that a lot of the terminology that we use when we're discussing these um, horrendous policies, it sounds so benign. I mean, family separation 
you know, obviously it sounds awful, but really it's kidnapping and really it's disappearing, uh, disappearing of parents and disappearing of children. And nothing, uh, nothing says that more than the fact that there's these 545 parents that they can't even locate. Um, and so, yes, so they came to our border and the, the class of people that we're talking about right now are the ones who were not, uh, that the government did not admit at first that they had um, this pilot program where they were purposely uh, separating families as a deterrent. And that was, um, these families came to our border, the, a parent and child, sometimes more than one child, as a justification for taking the child, um, well, although they would say it's the opposite, they said that they had to prosecute everyone crossing over unlawfully. So they would prosecute the parent, well, or charge the parent with unlawful entry, which is basically a misdemeanor. And then they would then put the child, I mean, put the parent in a federal prison and because they can't keep the child in the federal prison they would take the child and put the child into an office of refugee resettlement location and all of this was quite deliberate i mean this goes all the way back to 2017 when attorney then attorney general jeff sessions came out and said that they would do this and since then we've gotten lots of reporting of internal documents only recently the new york times had a lengthy piece where it was found that not only jeff sessions but deputy attorney general rod rosenstein who was seen as some sort of liberal democrat for a minute was found to have gone even further uh, in pushing the bar uh, for taking children, you know, as young as possible, regardless of age, away from their parents. It was a very deliberate thing. They did it because they wanted to punish people for coming to the United States. Right. And, you know, as as you've often heard, the cruelty was the point. There was no, absolutely no consideration of what harm this would do to the child, let alone the parent. And it was intentional, and that's what's coming out in the news now, or is just how intentional it was in the very beginning when um, when it came to light and the ACLU brought the Mizell class action, there was a lot that was unknown. So, you know, the, the government kind of made it seem... Uh, you know that that it, the separation aspect was accidental and and it wasn't intentional. It wasn't intended to be a deterrent. It was just an you know uh, offshoot of the uh, having to charge them. You know coming lawfully, etc. So now we really know, and we're just probably um, skimming the surface of what happened and how purposeful it was, how intentionally cruel it was no matter how young the child, and uh, we're talking about nursing infants, and it just, again, reiterates um, how this, I hate to call it an administration, but how they treat migrants coming to our borders seeking safety, that they do not see them as human beings. And I can assure you that 
in talking with these children and talking with these parents, many are struggling tremendously um, over this and they are just like any parent and any child who would have you know, been put into this horror, horrific. And presumably situation. parents came with their children looking for a better future for their children. Um, so one of the other pivots and deflections that Trump engaged in on Thursday night was to say to Biden, uh, that they're the ones who built the cages. You know, he kept asking the moderator, ask Biden, who built the cages? Joe, who built the cages? Um, did the, and we know the Obama administration had a poor record, especially in the early years on immigration, that there was family detention, but was there family separation systematically in the Obama administration? Well, I mean, I can start by just um speaking to that as someone who was pretty much on the front lines of the family detention when that was ramped up under Obama and we fought his administration for years to release families that they detained. So I don't, um, I don't deny or, or forget uh, Obama's history and the family detention the actually started with Bush, right? And then Obama continued it or re reinstated it? Um, well, so it, it, we, I'm here in Pennsylvania. We have a family detention center that's been running since 2001. And wow. for the longest time, it was the only family detention center. And then they started, uh, it was T. Don Hutto in Texas. And that was found to be so egregious that they shut it down in 2009, but the one near me, which is called Burks, was always uh, up and running, but not to the um, extent that it uh, it was when in July, I mean, June and July 2014, Obama decided to do this, say his own deterrence policy by ramping up family detention and first starting with Burks and then building the other facilities. So my argument to Trump saying, well, who built the cages is, yes, Obama built the cages. Yes, kids were put in detention and in sleeping on floors with Mylar blankets. But what is Trump's purpose in bringing that up? If he thinks it was a horrendous policy, he could have ended it. But not only did he not end it, but he made the immigration situation to so, such that we're really at the point of, of genocidal policies. Hmm. So it's it's there there it's right. important to recognize our past, but that doesn't justify anything that he has done. I mean, you you had talked about how DHS is kind of spinning this that the parents chose not to reunify with their children. Right, that's, that's a new thing that's come out now. The Obama, the Trump administration is saying that the parents don't want to be reunited with their children. Right, right. And so, again, it's as in so many of these uh, policies that they started under Trump, these parents are given a Sophie's choice. I mean, they fled their country with their child to save their child's life. And so if we chose then to 
deport the parent back to the very harm that they fled, then how is that a choice for the parent to say, well, we can send your child back too? And I can tell you that the families that we are representing right now, there are 25 who are seeking reunification with their children and they're in their home countries. Many of them are in hiding. Many of them cannot return to their home villages. Some have already been found by their persecutors and had to be relocated and in hiding again. And so, of course, so they came from did. these dangerous conditions. They were fleeing danger, which is why yes. they came to the U.S. They didn't just right. saunter over looking for higher paying jobs. No. And, and so they came here. They came here seeking uh, asylum, seeking safety with their child. So just picture this, and their child was taken from them. They had no idea, many of them, until they were actually deported, did they have any contact with their child or know where their child was. So you can only imagine how uh, desperate they were in detention, not knowing. And then, um, so we take their child, we put them in prison, they can't contact their child. The child has no idea what happened, right? How can a six-year-old know why all of a sudden they're in this facility with hundreds of other children away from their parents? Then we take the parent and we deport them back to their home country that they fled with their child here, never knowing whether they'll ever see their child again. Let's talk about the conditions under which the children are being held. 545 children without parents is a lot of children. Trump said on Thursday night that um, they were being held in excellent conditions. He said, we brought reporters. They're so well taken care of. They're in facilities that are so clean. So as somebody who works directly with families um, and trying to bring together children with their parents, what is the conditions that children are being held in? Well, I mean, initially, children are held with their, you know, when they were first brought in and brought in with their parents, they're held in what they call the Ilera, which is actually uh, means icebox because it's so cold. Those are the pictures you see where they're maybe sleeping on a mat with a mylar blanket. It's, it's freezing. It, uh, they, they can be crowded together. They can be sleeping near the bathroom. Um, some are then transferred to what they call the Pereira, which is the dog kennel. It's just a larger facility. And then the children were sent to ORR facilities, Office of Refugee Resettlement. And these are the big, you know, some of them the size of warehouses like Walmart that contain hundreds and hundreds of children um, and no, uh, no tending to them or their trauma. Uh, and then eventually, like everyone that we represent, have, has been released from ORR custody. Sometimes it took a while, but they're released to sponsors. Um, some sponsors are family members. Some, there is no family member. Some are in foster care. And, you know, some have been bounced from sponsor to sponsor. And I can just, um, again, you can only imagine that no matter no. It's, it's hard to imagine. Are. Right. And that, but no matter how good the condition might be where they are right now, even if hopefully they are in a loving situation, they are still traumatized. And we have re reunified, actually, Alo Chilado has reunified more families uh, than any organization as 
as of yet, but the ones that we've reunified, I can tell you that the reunification is just the beginning of the long journey of healing. A lot of these children think that their parent abandoned them. Again, they have no idea. There's this lack of trust, and, and I'm not just talking about the, ch the younger children, the teenagers too. So we, um, they all need, they all need healing. They all need counseling. They need safety, and we are not. I mean, the government is not providing that. And as far as you're asking, well, okay, the, uh, Donald Trump says we are, you know, we are trying to reunify. We're doing everything we can. The government is doing nothing. The government is doing nothing. Um, the only way we even know about these people is because of the ACLU filed the Mizell class action. It is uh, organizations like Justice in Motion who are in Central America going door to door, village to village, trying to find these people. It's not funded by the government. Their return is not funded by the government and their return is not guaranteed by the government. In Wait, fact, so when a federal judge has uh, asked lawyers to help reunite families, there there's no resources being given to ensure that reunification? Well, so the original Ms. L class settlement affected the people who were, the parents and children who were currently in the United States still in custody. There was no right of return for families, parents where the, uh, they had been deported. So there is no clear pathway for families who were deported to come back and be reunified with their child. So that has been up to a very painstaking one by one process that the, you know, we actually have to ask the, the government's benevolence in, in, in returning these families and the first group that we proffered before them, it was about 52, I believe, um, and they categorically said no. And so again, it's up to the uh, nonprofit organizations, NGOs like us, to find these families. It was up to us to get them returned. It was up to us to get, thanks to a lot of generous fundraising, get them back. The government has no responsibility to do so. Unbelievable. So this was an issue, just very quickly in the last couple of minutes, this was an issue that um, really motivated Americans around the country when it first came to light in 2018. And here we are in 2020 on the verge of an election. Do you feel that there just isn't as much attention? I mean, yes, it made it into the presidential debate, thank goodness. And because of that, you know, of course, it's in the news cycle. But uh, it seems as though in the massive list of wrongdoings from the Trump administration, this is, you know, one of many or maybe even a footnote. Right. And that's the, the really difficult part, because there's so much that's being done, you know, between the uh, remain in Mexico program at the border and, you know, expedited removals. It's hard to wrap your head around this, but I do believe that the family separations touched a nerve with a lot of the public. My fear was that most people thought that it was over because, again, the families that were already here were reunified. And I know, and now we all know, that there are hundreds 
still in their home countries who have not been reunified and there may be at the moment no chance for them to do so and some have not even seen their children for over three years so you can imagine what has happened in the meantime well i want to thank you so much for joining us today caroline give out a website where people can find out more about the work that you do uh sure it's alotrolado.org a-l-o-t-r-o-l-a-d-o.org thanks so much for joining us good luck to you Thank you, Sonali. My guest has been Carol Ann Donahoe, Managing Attorney of the Family Reunification Project at Al Otro Lado. We've been discussing Trump's lies on immigration at Thursday night's debate. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. With over 50 million Americans having cast their ballots in early voting states, 2020 is on track to have the highest turnout for a presidential race in years. But one demographic whose turnout has remained small in the past are the original inhabitants of this land. Native American voters have historically had low rates of turnout for reasons that are deeply linked to the history of systematic racism. Will this year be any different? My guest is Jane Reith Schrodel. She is the Thornton F. Bradshaw Professor of Public Policy at Claremont Graduate University. Her earlier book was Evangelicals and Democracy in America, Religion and Politics. She now joins me to discuss her latest book, Voting in Indian Country, The View from the Trenches. Welcome to the program, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. So I think many people, and I count myself among them, have not really been aware of the fact that, like other demographics, Native Americans also had to have their ability to vote, their right to vote, be enshrined in a law. You know, like women had to wait up until just about 100 years ago, African-Americans even um, later than that. Native Americans had their right to vote in 1924, less than 100 years ago. So let's start there. Tell me about the Indian Citizenship Act and what led to it. What did it mean? Well, the Indian Citizenship Act actually did not give the native people in this country the right to vote. Ah. It said nothing about voting, but it did say that American Indians, Alaska natives who were born within the borders of the United States had US citizenship. But at that time, many states still statutorily had laws that precluded Native Americans from voting. And keep in mind that 
states have the right, according to the Constitution, to determine the time, places, and procedures for elections and voting. This is part of the Constitution. I, I paraphrased it. But what that meant is the right to be a US citizen, the citizenship did not necessarily come with the right to vote. So that then went to the states and states with large native populations did many, many things to disenfranchise this group of, of new citizens. So it basically then was a patchwork approach to voting rights. Was there a uniform desire among this very uh, heterogeneous demographic? Because, of course, there are so many different tribes geographically and culturally different from one another. Was there any sort of consensus around the desire to vote in U.S. elections? Well, that's a, that is a great question, and I'm so glad you recognize the extreme diversity across these populations. I mean, it is true that at the time that US citizenship came into play, that many people who were native said, we don't want this, we are not interested in this, we want our own separate um, sovereignty. But the truth of the matter is that it's become extremely important for Native Americans to vote um, many of the rights that people have and the governmental services require that the population have a voice. And it was really after the Second World War that the Nation, uh, Native American National Congress for American Indian NACI, Native Cong National Congress of American Indians, was established and really made it a strong national push for voting rights for Native Americans. I mean, there were a number of court cases in the 1940s where US military veterans, people like Frank Harrison, came in different states and challenged laws that statutorily disenfranchised all of them. It wasn't just the laws like in the South that had literacy tests, but there were laws that said no American Indians can vote, including one that said that you would have to terminate your native identity to be able to vote. And if so, you had to go before a judge and the judge would decide if you were sufficiently white in that sense to be allowed to vote. So it's a very, it's a very, very troubled history. And even uh, as we turn to the 1965 Voting Rights Act, at the time the VRA was passed, and it was really interesting, I went through personally and read all of the thousand, over 1,000 pages of debates in Congress and documents that were supporting. And Native Americans were only mentioned very briefly in two very brief spots hmm. in that act. Wow. And in fact, many people thought they were not even covered by the VRA. So when uh, we w when did that change? When did we have a situation where uh, there was not only a uniform or universal right to vote across all states and a perhaps near universal desire among this demographic to vote in U.S. elections? Well, that's a that's a two part question. I mean, the right to vote, as I said, the VRA 
it was not even clear that it applied. And it wasn't really enforced until after about 10 years later when there were several really egregious cases of vote denial. For example, there was a man named Tom Shirley who ran, I believe in 1972, for a county seat in Arizona. He was on the Navajo Nation, on the reservation. He ran for a county seat. He got three times the vote of his white opponent, but the county refused to seat him. So in 1975, the US Civil Rights Commission issued a report that showed that what the VRA had accomplished mostly focused on um, African-American populations in the South, but they also brought in examples of really egregious, egregious denial of the right to vote from Indian country, including the one I just mentioned. And so 1975, in that sense, was a turning point. This was also the period in US history um, where there was a great deal of Native American activism we're thinking about the Wounded Knee occupation um, and a variety of other social protests. Um, it was called the Red Power Era. So in the 70s into the early 80s was a kind of turning point. But there's still, even today, there is much higher levels of voting on tribal elections as opposed to non-tribal election state and federal government elections. And part of this is rooted in a deep, deep, deep distrust. Um, and that comes from the history of racial animus. So in 2016, yes, 2016, I was part of a team that did surveys in New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and South Dakota. I was part of the group that went to Nevada and South Dakota. We did surveys of more than 1,500 Native Americans. And they evinced in these surveys extraordinarily low levels of trust in the non-tribal governments, but the lowest level of trust, I mean, single digits level was in the level of trust for state governments, which are the ones that they encounter on a daily basis, right. state and county governments. Right. So we've only had congressional representation of Native uh, candidates and Native lawmakers in recent years. It's kind of shocking that that's the case. What are some of the barriers to voting that we see in the modern era? And I'd love to move into a discussion of some of those barriers this year. You mentioned 2016. Um, and of course, we know especially that the Republican Party has now adopted as a campaign strategy, seemingly, that voter suppression is a path to political power. So that impacts uh, people who traditionally vote Democratic, uh, which includes people of color in general, black voters, il uh, uh, Latino voters, youth voters. I imagine that also impacts Native voters. Absolutely. I mean, just, but what I would say is all of the things that are employed to depress, suppress, dilute, whatever terms one wishes to use, the populations that you mentioned, all of those are applied 
to the indigenous population, but they often have what I call a twist, something that makes it even harder. So let me give you an example, okay? Researchers have found that if you close polling places and force people to move, um, travel at, say a quarter of a mile further to be able to vote, there's a statistically significant decline in participation. And we know that in the past four years, there's been well over a thousand polling places closed, mostly in minority communities. But what this means is different when we're talking about individuals who live in native uh, on reservations in particular, or if we're talking about um, Alaska natives in native villages because the distances are dramatically further. So the sort of so, same challenges that rural voters face in general. But exponentially but, but worse, right. further. So for example, um, if you look, I, was, I spent some time at the Duck Valley Reservation, which is on the border of Idaho, Nevada and Idaho. And there is no po election day polling place there. There's not a drop box. So if people want to cast an in-person ballot, they have to travel roughly 100 miles or 200 miles round trip to Elko. Or if you go to the Navajo Reservation, which I've spent a chunk of time on also, the Navajo Reservation is literally larger than the state of West Virginia. Very limited number of polling places, but there's a big push in Arizona, for example, to vote by mail. This election, they're expecting probably 90% to use vote by mail. But most reservations do not have residential mail delivery. So you have to go to a post office. You have no choice if you want to vote. But remember, the Navajo Nation is larger than the state of West Virginia. Wow. There are only 40 places in the entire reservation where you can obtain mail or post mail. West Virginia has 725, but it's even worse because we are talking about a poor population, a large number who do not have access to vehicles, so they do not travel regularly to get mail. If you do not cannot afford a post office box, and there's a shortage of post office boxes, you have to do general delivery. If you do not get your mail within one month, that mail is either returned or discarded. So as I said, there's a twist. It's harder because of the distances and the lack of institutional support that you will find from the federal government, state government, and county governments. What about the issue of voter ID laws? I, certainly, uh, we've heard that in states with large Native populations where Republicans have changed voter ID laws, they have deliberately left out Native or tribal voters' uh, uh, ID cards. Well, it's, it's a huge issue. I mean, this was one of the big issues that was in North Dakota in 2018, when three weeks before the election, the U.S. Supreme Court allowed the state of North Dakota to put in place a voter ID law that required residential street addresses on government-issued identification, knowing full well that people on reservations 
They're and they don't have street addresses. They have post office boxes. The roads often do not have names. If they do have names, they don't have the numbers associated with it. So it was extremely hard. It was very malicious. There was a huge effort um, that I was fortunate to be part of to use GIS and things to create these addresses. But I mean, just part of this incredible attack on the right to vote. Um, one of the examples and is um, I did, sir, I did um, these wonderful interviews with people who are lawyers, activists, plaintiffs in lawsuits. And this woman who's a lawyer at the Arizona State University Indian Law Clinic was telling me about the challenges that occurred with one woman, an elderly Navajo woman who had voted all of her life. And prior to their having the ID lock, she would go in and she would use her thumbprint as a document, uh, documenting who she was. And the people knew her. And when Arizona put in the strict um, voter identification laws, this woman decided she knew she had to get a government, um, Arizona state government identification document. She had tribal IDs, but she had to get a state one. So she got a ride to the local, the closest, not local, but the closest DMV office to get identification documents. They told her they did not issue them there. Well, she'd heard they issued them for white people, but you know, she went and she got more materials and she reached out to the lawyer I mentioned, Patty, Bonnet, Patty Ferguson Bonet, who then went with her to the DMV and they refused to provide her with a document. They said mm -hmm. they didn't issue them there. So then uh, Ferguson Bonet took the older elderly woman and they drove to Flagstaff, which is where the main DMV offices were. And they went in there and the people at the DMV there refused to give the woman an identification document. They said that her tribal documents would not count to prove who she was. And in particular, she had been born at home, so she didn't have a birth certificate. So they tried to say she was not a US citizen. Fortunately, uh, Ferguson Bonet was able to pressure them sufficiently, um, the clout of being a law school professor and a lawyer, and was able to get this woman an identification document so that she could vote. But that took eight hours driving and a lawyer, how many people go to that, be able to go to that extent in order to get an identification document? Quite an incredible story. So, so that is one example, and we may never hear of the countless examples of people who simply gave up, and rightfully so, because it's not like you get paid to vote. It's a, it's a right, but it's not something that, uh, you know, one does have to go out of one's way. And when there are barriers thrown up over and over again, um, it, it, you know, it can appear pointless. And, and that's such a tragedy. What about this year's situation, particularly with the coronavirus pandemic, which we know has hit some um, areas, some reservations in particular, some tribal uh, governments and communities very, very hard. Is that yet another barrier? Oh, absolutely. I mean, COVID has been, you know, has been horrible 
in this country and particularly for people of color. And Native Americans have among the highest rates of COVID. And the meaning of this pandemic though is even greater because one needs to understand that this was a population that was devastated by the arrival of Europeans who brought with them diseases such as smallpox. So when we're talking about a pandemic, it has both a historical and a cultural resonance that is much more devastating, devastating as it is for all of us, but much more devastating in many ways for that community and population. So yeah, COVID has made voting by mail um, a bigger issue. Uh, it has, um, many states are advocating voting by mail. If you look, um, for example, um, let me talk for a moment about South Dakota. Um, South Dakota is a state that is called the Mississippi of the North. Um, you can figure out exactly what it means to call the state Mississippi of the North. Hmm. Um, has a horrible history, but one of, they've they got a lot of positive publicity after the primary because they sent out to all registered voters in the state an application for them to get an absentee ballot to be able to vote by mail. But the problem was, among other things, that you needed to get that application notarized or have an official um, documentation that you were who you were, in addition to you were already someone who was registered to vote. And add into that, that you would then have to vote by mail because voting by mail brings in an issue of political trust. I mentioned trust earlier in terms of low levels of trust in state and local governments. But when we did that survey, we also asked people how much trust they had that their vote would count. If they voted in person on election day, where you stick the um, ballot in the box and it mixes with all the other ballots, or you pull the lever, or you vote by mail. And what we found was low levels of trust in all forms of voting that were off the reservation, um, non-tribal. But the level of trust when we moved to voting by mail, and for example, in Nevada, it was 20, only 28% of the respondents said they trusted it. And South Dakota it was even lower, 24%. Now, why is that? That is because when you vote by mail, your ballot goes in to a local election official. That person determines whether your ballot counts. They will look, they will have your name on the outside, they will know what precinct you are from, and it opens up the possibility of making racial, racially racially discriminatory actions, possibly throwing ballots out that should not be thrown out. But All right, and people know that. that. Yeah. yeah, but even if it doesn't happen, there's that fear that it would happen. Right. Well, finally, let me ask you this uh, very briefly. Uh, given the widespread enthusiasm in the electorate to vote this year in 2020, are you seeing that level of enthusiasm in Indian country as well? 
Absolutely. I mean, there is no comparison with 2016. 2016, when I traveled around, I never saw signs. I, people would say, I don't see a difference. This year, there is incredible desire to vote. This last week in Minnesota, there was a voter registration drive on reservations and over 8,000 people knew, were new registered, newly registered to vote. So yeah, there is a deep, deep desire and a sense that this is possibly the most important election in many, many people's lives. And certainly I think it is in mine. Well, I want to thank you so much, Jean, for joining us today. Good luck with the book. Thank you. My guest has been Jean Reith Schrodel. She is the Thornton F. Bradshaw Professor of Public Policy at Claremont Graduate University. Her earlier book was Evangelicals and Democracy in America, Religion and Politics. We've been discussing her latest book called Voting in Indian Country, The View from the Trenches. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatka. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on facebook.com slash Sonali. That's the letters R-U with Sonali. And follow us on twitter.com slash Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. You are listening to KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your Portland dial, KBOO.FM on your everywhere on earth internet dial. Stay safe, stay sane, stay tuned.